This is Car Expert. So there's lots of these little touches that Ford have done that really do make it, without even a shadow of a doubt, the best pickup truck. As Cooper itself has said, if the market conditions are right, if it can deliver on the promised supply, there's definitely a world in which by 2025 it's selling 7,000 cars per year. The N-Line was surprisingly fun and capable, but just not quite as raw, fun and sporty as the Polo. Mike Costello, hello. Hello, Mandy. And g'day, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. Now, ages ago, I'm sure we spoke about on the podcast, Scully, your brother bought a ZB Commodore. It was literally just before Holden ceased production or after, I can't quite remember. Yeah, so he um, he did the right thing and he came to his brother for some information about a new car and I told him that he should buy this Commodore. He paid 25 grand drive away for the thing. It was a base model, brand new with, I think, three years free servicing, which is so cheap. Yeah. Uh, and two days after he took delivery, Holden announced it was leaving Australia. So <laughs> He's still got it, I'm assuming, Scully, and, and, and give us an update. How's he been enjoying his time with it? Yeah, so we got the car early 2020 and he has loved it so far. Um, it's a very, a very different car to his last one, which was a, a Subaru Outback, the first of the ugly American ones. There was a manual. I had that car before he did. Um, but I suppose the reason I wanted to talk about it was because I drove it recently and I'm planning to drive it quite a long way this weekend. I'm taking it up to Falls Creek from Melbourne and I'm just constantly reminded by how good of a car it is. <laughs> Even the base model has got a pretty good screen with Apple CarPlay. It's got a digital speedo, climate control, keyless entry. It's so comfortable. And in the city, it's really smooth and punchy to drive. And it's massive. It's absolutely huge. He's been able to fit a cubic ton of sand and lolly wrappers and McDonald's in there. And he's not once cleaned it and there's still space for people, which I find remarkable. Younger brothers, eh? I think it really brings into stark... Uh, contrast for me, just how ridiculously overpriced and underspecced new cars are today. We're only two or three years down the road from when this vehicle was available, and there is absolutely nothing that you can buy for a mo- And look, again, I understand global factors come into it, inflation not being the least of them, let alone a world pandemic. But the fact that only a couple of years ago you could get a vehicle like that at a price that today you could barely get anything for, and I mean barely get anything for. I mean, what's the cheapest Yaris now? Is at least that, is it not? Uh, around there, I think it's slightly less, but not by much. It's a, um, it's a really nice way to actually bring home just how much of a rip-off cars are right now, frankly. I, th- I think it also puts into context some of the criticism around that ZB Commodore because the reason it was this car was so cheap was that Holden brought a very limited number of entry-level cars in, realised no one wanted them, and then these dealers were just kind of stuck with them and Lockie managed to get lucky enough to find one on car sales, talk to the dealer who was just going, get this thing off my hands. I don't want it. I want to make it someone else's problem. Buy it from me. So I think it does definitely show the fact that you used to be able to get deals and you can't at the moment. But I think it just shows how underappreciated that car was in its time. And I understand between the Holden Commodore badge, the fact that it's a liftback slash sedan in a world that wants SUVs, among a whole lot of other factors, I understand why it didn't succeed. But Hopping out of the new Peugeot 508 I've been driving this week and into Lockheed's Commodore, and they don't feel like cars that cost $45,000 difference based on the, the price tag. It's also probably worth saying that uh, just last week it was announced that that vehicle is going to be killed globally. 
I mean, it's scarcely relevant now because it's made by a company that's not even linked to General Motors, given that Stellantis now runs and controls Opel and Vauxhall, but that vehicle is about to go out of production globally as well. No Mondeo, no Insignia. What are the stereotypical fax salesmen of the UK going to drive? And they're all going to get Camry hybrids. No, that, that's not really even a UK thing, is it? Ford Escapes. Volkswagen ID3s. Yeah, <laughs> new world. I look forward to the next Arctic Monkey song that instead of featuring the Ford Mondeo, it features the Volkswagen ID3. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about this week's car news, we bring in once again Jack Quick. Hello. Hey, Mandy, how are you? Very good, thank you. I'm actually pretty rapt to see this 2023 Honda Civic Type R being revealed this week. It looks good. I don't know about you guys. It does. I I reckon it looks really cool. um, You might have seen a few of the images circulating around or or our story on the website, but it's um, the new uh, 11th generation Civic Type R has been revealed and it was shown off in a championship white colour, which I think really suits the car. It has a lot of heritage within the brand and I think suits it perfectly. It looks really nice um, in, in, in all done up in its new look. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, this new Civic uh, Type R is going to be coming to Australia in um, early 2023, but there's a few things that they uh, that Honda hasn't mentioned just yet. Most infuriatingly is how I'd almost say it, is that we, have, we don't know how much power and torque it's going to have yet. We do know it's going to, I'm fairly certain Honda has said it's going to be more than the previous generation, but we don't know how much exactly, which is a little bit frustrating because the Civic Type R had a really, really long teaser campaign, been talking about it forever, but we don't know exact power and torque figures, which, as I've already said, is very annoying. We do know it's going to have a 2-litre turbocharged four-cylinder uh, with a six-speed manual transmission with a special rev matching feature. And um, on the visual front, it has um, an aggressive front and, uh, front and rear bumpers with wider wheel arches than the regular Civic and a huge rear wing that kind of looks, um, in my opinion, and as I've written in previous stories, is very Porsche 911 GT3-esque. Um, on, on the inside, there's um, a red-accented uh, trim, all bits of uh, red throughout, very very leery is how I would think. Um, there's no word yet on, a, on pricing, but expect to see a little bit more than the, the 47000 for the regular Civic, which is the top of the range, the only model that's offered in Australia, but expect a lot. And um, what do you guys reckon? Will this stack up against the competition? Yeah, well, I mean, as you touched on, Jack, in some ways it's a whole new design and then in other ways it's evolutionary. So the, the 2-litre VTEC turbo is obviously a carryover engine from the outgoing car. It made 228 kilowatts and 400 newton metres in its previous incarnation. So if they can get that up to around 235 and 420 for the new one, they'll, they'll sort of be cooking with gas. Front-wheel drive, manual gearbox only, definitely still skewed towards an enthusiast audience. Enormous tyres on the back of it, massive Brembo cross-drill brakes up the front, 350mm is what I believe will be the sizings. Um, and, you know, for all of the criticism Honda cops, there's been very little about the Type R previously. The outgoing one, yes, it looked wild and to some people's tastes it was a bit over the top, mine included, but nobody doubted the performance abilities of that vehicle. Competition's going to, only going to get hotter, though. The new GR Corolla is around the corner from Toyota. Obviously, the Hyundai i30N is constantly getting updated and improved. And this Civic Type R's price will be pushing it up against things like the Mercedes-AMG A45 because it's probably going to cost seventy grand plus um, based on Honda's pricing strategy. So it's going to be very interesting to see. But um, on first impressions, it looks like a hell of a machine. Love the interior, too. I'm going to be a nerd here. 
a 35 Mercedes, which is a far more favourable comparison around so, 70 grand. Yeah, market. but I'm not talking price compares because Australians have shown that if there's one thing they don't care about, it's how much their cars cost because they're paying 5,000 people have already ordered an $86,000 Ranger Raptor. So I don't wow. think price matters for performance enthusiasts. And I think the massive wing and the extremely loud, you know, hoary sort of engine that this car has got makes it more of a 45 rival conceptually, if not on price. But I do take your point. I think the thing with this Civic Type R is, and obviously we haven't driven it yet, everything that was great about the last one based about what we know should be great about this one. But the one thing that held, I know, me back and a few other people back is the way the old one looked, and that seems to have been solved. So provided Honda hasn't managed to mess up the formula, and on paper at least it looks like it hasn't, I'm sure it's on to a winner. It did set a record as the fastest front driver around Suzuka as well. So uh, in terms of its performance abilities, we're expecting big things. Let's just not hope it's going to be a couple of years' wait to get our hands on one either. <laughs> no promises. Uh, hey, Jack, uh, the ACT has come out with an EV strategy which includes ICE cars to be banned. Yeah, Mandy, um, that's correct. So the ACT, uh, the Australian Capital Territory, has announced it's going to be um, ending sales of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2035. And by 2030, it's aiming to have around 80 to 90% of new vehicle sales to be uh, battery electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles. Um, um, This particular deal has been deemed as aspirational by the ACT. <laughs> and um, ACT is working on the working with the federal government on this, and I um, mean it has said as well it would prefer um, a federal uh, policy on this. I um, instead of having to go uh, by itself and uh, start uh, create this uh, strategy by itself, it would prefer something national. And um, the ACT is also advocating for stronger stronger vehicle emission standards and reforms to the fuel excise tax fuel excise tax write-off, import tariffs, and LCT, luxury car tax. Um, And also, it's also going to be doing, uh, creating more EV charges and aiming to reach uh, net zero emissions in 2045. And guys, do you reckon these uh, these goals are achievable? Certainly in uh, the nation's capital, because the Territory uh, Government has always been about the most progressive of all of Australia's various state and territory governments. Canberra is renowned for being a little bit of a uh, sort of lefty paradise, and I say that as somebody who uh, admires that point of view. But I think nationally it's going to be a much bigger problem. Obviously, all the states and territories at the moment are rolling out their own rebates and incentives programs and the lack of with the lack of a federal one that exists albanese and his mob will obviously introduce more things soon on that front but a 2035 straight out ban on new combustion cars is going to be very hard to get across the line in all of australia Mm. you know in urban places yes out in the regions probably less so but what's really interesting about this is it's the first time we've seen in australia any government actively pitch the sort of things that we're seeing in Europe. We've always talked about Australia Mm. being a step behind. Well, this kind of policy, 2035 proposed ice ban on new vehicles, is basically what Europe has proposed. So Australia is now, at least in a regulatory sense, no longer sort of kicking the can down the road and we're actually starting to see some actions being taken that make Australia level with other developed markets. So it is interesting that what the ACT government is doing and what it's calling for from the federal government is roundly in line with what car makers have been calling for. They want firm fuel standards. They want emissions targets to help improve their chance of getting electric vehicles to Australia. And they want some certainty on what the future of motoring looks like in Australia. Um, 
Fingers crossed the ACT, and I'm not advocating for a, the same 2035 ban all around Australia, but some of the stuff the ACT is calling for seems like really sensible policy based on what the rest of the world's doing. Fingers crossed the people in Canberra listen to the other people in Canberra. <laughs> That's always the age-old problem. What I am hearing, though, and this is slightly separate, though, but from some people in, in the world of automotive policy in Australia and the different, you know, peak bodies and lobby groups and things like that, the, the sort of common refrain that I'm hearing at the moment is there's a lot more activity happening behind closed doors now that the Albanese government's in place around incentivising the electrification and carbon reduction of, of Australia's vehicle fleet. There's a bit more conversation being had now that's productive and heading in the right direction. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more happening on a policy sense than we were under previous governments, which I think is pretty good news. I suppose for, for people who still want to buy ICE cars, it's not going to stop them just driving down the road to New South Wales <laughs> if that state hasn't got that regulation in yet. So. It's also worth mentioning, come 2035, and I I know you were making a joke there, Mandy, but in all seriousness, come 2035... What are you going to be able to buy? Well, what are you going to be able to buy the internal combustion anyway? Because the yep. rest of the world is moving this way. We've got all sorts of car makers putting a hard date on the end of internal combustion sales. Hmm. I love the idea of being able to wander out of state and come back with a V8 Mustang, but based on what we know about where the industry is going, that's probably not going to be the case anyway. Yeah. Very true. Okay, we're going to move on to the next story now, Jack. Nissan has revealed a rival to the RAV4 hybrid. Yes, that's exactly right. So um, over in Japan, uh, Nissan has revealed what it's calling the X-Trail e-Power. If you're not familiar um, with e-Power, I'll get into it in just a little bit, but it is uh, what I would believe to be a rival to the very popular RAV4, um, and it will be coming to Australia, this um, X-Trail e-Power. But it won't be coming um, at, at the launch for the, the regular petrol-powered um, X-Trail, but it will be coming um, ex ex expected uh, to in 2023 at this stage at some point. We don't know anything more than that. So I'm just going to give you the year, around about in that, <laughs> in that I think, time. I think it'll probably be the second half of next year because we know that Nissan's going to bring the smaller Qashqai e-power and that will be in the first half of next year. So process of elimination would suggest that we'll see it in the second half of next year. Nissan, uh, not exactly the priority when it comes to securing vehicles uh, from an Australian perspective. They tend to go to America and Japan and other markets before they make it to us. So we'll be waiting a while, but probably not as long as it takes to get your hands on a RAV4 hybrid, which has a wait list of about 18 months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, back to X-Trail uh, e-Power. It's going to be available um, with a single-motor front-wheel drive model or a dual-motor all-wheel drive uh, different options, and it's available in either five uh, or seven-seat configurations. And um, all of the versions come with um, 150 kilowatt and 330 newton meter electric motor on the front and um, all-wheel drive models have an additional 100 kilowatt and 195 newton meter electric motor on the rear we don't know total system outputs but um just remember if you add that together it's not necessarily going to equal that it would be somewhere in between and um, so all of the uh, the electric motors if you go for the all-wheel drive or the single electric motor is powered by a small lithium-ion battery and it's hooked up to a 1.5 litre turbocharged petrol engine, which, is, which produces 106 kilowatts and 250 newton metres. But here's where I get to. So this is different. If you think of like a traditional, uh, say, let's say Toyota hybrid system, this e-power system is a little bit different um, because um, 
the, the engine kind of acts as a generator and never actually powers the wheel. So it just creates uh, the energy which goes into the battery and then the battery uh, powers the electric motors. So the, the engine never, I'm probably butchering how to explain this, but um, the, the uh, actual engine never touches, uh, never powers the wheel at all, if you think of that as a, as a holistic and um, what do you guys reckon? Do you reckon this will go up against the RAV4 nicely, a RAV4 hybrid, or will this be in a different category together? The big, well, certainly not in a different category. Mm. The the big challenge for Nissan is going to be how to explain this new yes. technology. So as you said, mm. with a Toyota hybrid, um, obviously the petrol engine can power the wheels or it can be assisted at low speeds mm. by the electric motor, mm -hmm. which is where the fuel savings come into play. With the power system, the petrol engine is purely a generator, so it's a series hybrid. It's basically a generator that creates electricity through an inverter process that powers the electric motors. Explaining that to the average buyer is going to be challenge number one. Challenge number two is whether it's going to compete on a fuel efficiency basis versus mm. price basis. This is expensive technology. The Toyota RAV4 hybrid is a very simple scenario. It costs three grand more, but it uses X amount less fuel, I can work out in the back of an envelope that I'm going to pay that difference back in a space of a couple of years. Mm. If the Nissan doesn't have that cost-benefit ratio spot on, and I suggest it probably won't because it'll be more expensive because the tech's newer and it will be a little bit less fuel efficient based on what we've seen coming out of Japan, mm. it won't be quite as strong. The one upside is that the four-wheel drive version will have a much more powerful rear motor, as you touched on, Jack, compared mm. to the RAV4. So it's dual motor, fully electric, drive shaft, less all-wheel drive system should work really well mm. and we found that the RAV4 hybrid uh, doesn't work so well off-road so that'll make it quite different and the seven seat option should be a real game changer as well because of course the Toyota doesn't come with that. It's also going to be down to price. One of the reasons people love the RAV4 hybrid so much is the fact that it's only $2,500 or $3,000 more than the petrol equivalent. If Nissan can price the e-power in line and is able to tell the tech story there are going to be plenty of people that it makes a lot of sense for. If, like we've seen with some other brands and their hybrids, like the Havel H6, for example, and even, I mean, when you're looking at plug-in hybrids, stuff like the Peugeot 3008, where there's a fifteen dollars or $20,000 jump, I doubt Nissan will do that. All of a sudden, the sell gets a lot tougher. So once you've actually explained it to people, I think also ultimately it's a numbers game, and if the numbers stack up, people will take a look, and Nissan just needs to make sure that gap is RAV4-sized or close to it. Yeah. And uh, Jack, lastly, can you tell us about the very ambitious Australian sales goal that Cupra has? So, yeah, Cupra, if you're not familiar, it's one of the new uh, subsidiary brands to Australia. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subsidiary of a subsidiary, I want to say. It's um, Sayat is a Cupra subsidiary, and it's very Spanish. <laughs> and it's new to Australia. It has some very ambitious sales goals, as you said, Mandy. Cupra wants to sell over 7,000 cars by 2025. Now, I'm just saying numbers at this point, but to kind of contextualise it, it took uh, Skoda 12 years to achieve this same figure, and Cooper wants to do it in just three, which is baffling to me. I think it's quite... Um, ambitious is the right word to put it, as you said, Mandy. And um, Cooper also wants 5% of the Australian EV market by the same time. So Australia is really a really important for Cupra, uh, a brand, a port, important market for Cupra, I should say. And as I'm still building its brand at this stage, it's still in its infancy, and um, deliveries of those first cars are starting in August, that being the Leon, the Ateca, and the Formenta. 
And um, all of the FEV models, so um, the plug-in hybrid uh, versions are coming in September. But the one that I'm looking most forward to is its first all-electric model, the Born, which is coming in the first quarter of 2023. I'm looking forward to that a lot. And um, do you reckon these goals are a bit too ambitious for Cupra? What do you guys think? I'm going to let you take this one first, Scully, because I know you you have been uh, drinking a lot of Cooper flavored Kool Aid recently. So, what do you reckon? The reference that Mike is making is the fact that Cooper wants to be a different sort of car brand. It wants to build what it calls a tribe. And I went to the launch of this brand in Sydney last week, uh, and between people walking around with Cooper stamps on their hand to get into the event, and all this talk about building events in the metaverse, which it calls the meta hype, and all sorts of things like that. There are some elements of what Cupra wants to do that feel quite culty. Of course, if you buy a Cupra, you're not forced to go and live out in the desert with someone. You can just drive the car to and from work. So don't worry too much about that. <laughs> look, I, having seen what I've seen from Cupra, I think the cars look fantastic, the Ford Mentor especially. And the born, according to Wayne Griffiths, who is the Cupra CEO globally, won't be supply constrained in Australia. We've seen with the Tesla Model 3 that if the price is right and if an electric vehicle is in supply, people will buy it. So I think as Cooper itself has said, if the market conditions are right, if enough people want electric vehicles and if it can deliver on the promised supply, there's definitely a world in which by 2025 it's selling 7,000 cars per year. Which uh, is actually how many cars both Land Rover and Renault sold last year to put that into place a bit. My biggest concern for this is... Uh, it comes to Australia as yet another Volkswagen Australia Group brand. Skoda, Audi, Volkswagen, Volkswagen Commercial, now Cupra. Um, so does it uh, win by causing its fellow VAG Group products to lose? Does it steal sales from Skoda and Volkswagen or does it steal sales from Tesla and Polestar and all manner of other startups? Because I can't imagine that Volkswagen Group is really going to want to cut its nose to spite its face and just lose buyers from one brand to another. So that's going to be a big challenge for it. But internally, Volkswagen Australia has put some of its best and brightest executives in charge of Cooper Australia. It is seen globally as a real test market as that brand branches beyond Europe. So it's going to have a hell of a lot of support. The products are good. Um, so if it doesn't work, it certainly uh, hasn't been for lack of trying. It's interesting you mentioned crossing over or cannibalising the wider Volkswagen group. Having And I haven't driven the Formenter yet. That'll be next week. But having had a poke around a Formenter, having sat and had a look at Bourne, I do think that it's not going to take people from Skoda because it's a fundamentally different kind of thing. It looks more aggressive. It looks sportier inside. I know they're ultimately built on the same bones, but I think if you're sensible and Skoda-minded, you're not necessarily going to want a Forminter. Uh -huh. I do wonder, though, when we get to the point where the Leon and the Golf GTI are side by side or where the, the Leon and the Audi S3, the Golf R the Skoda Octavia RS are side by side, there definitely could be people who are shopping for essentially four versions of the same car mm -hmm. with different badges on them. And it's going to be really interesting to see who goes which way and why. In a wider sense, I mean, Australia is already one of the most cluttered markets around 65 brands for a million sales. And in the next year or so, there's going to be a handful of entirely new brands to market. We've just seen Polestar arrive, BYD's around the corner, Cherry's coming back, Ineos is coming, obviously Cupra. There's a whole plethora of new companies that are going to come into the market, which makes me wonder what brands that we're familiar with are going to have to get punted out the 
other side because Australia can't support an unlimited number of choices. Some of these brands are no longer going to be viable. So that's the real question for me. One comes in, does one go out? And if so, which brand will it be? Maybe some French ones potentially would be where my line of speculation was going, but we'll have to wait and see about that. Absolutely. Well, if, uh, if you have any idea, we'd love to hear your opinion. Podcast at carexpert.com.au. Hey, Jack, quick thank you. Thanks, Mandy. A new dual cab unit in Australia is always big news. A new Ford Ranger is arguably the biggest news we'll have this year, and Mike Costello has been driving it. Moco, tell us, does it live up to the hype? Yeah, so and what, what a lot of hype there is, right? I mean, we've done prototype drives. We've seen endless teasers. We've you know, had uh, numerous chances to kick the tyres in a static situation. Um, and as you said, it's one of the most important vehicles launched over the past few years, given that it's the most Australian car left. There's more than a 1,000 Ford Australia engineers based in Victoria who are responsible for creating this car to be sold in over 180 countries all over the world. So it's a huge deal. Um, and yes, in short, it 100% does live up to the hype. And I wasn't hugely surprised to see that, given that the outgoing Ranger, despite going back more than a decade, albeit with some pretty significant updates along the way, was still one of the best pickup trucks you could buy. There's no reason, therefore, that the update wouldn't move on that. Now, it is based on a similar setup to the old car. The, the body on the frame or the ladder chassis is called the T6. It also underpins the Everest, and it's the exclusive remit of the Ford Australia engineers and designers. Um, but pretty much everything else about this car is new. It looks different on the outside. It looks a lot different on the inside. Completely new displays, brimming with new technologies. Um, and, of course, the headline act being the V6 diesel option with full-time all-wheel drive. So um, I did a two-day stint out in regional Victoria on the surf coast, went to the Australian Automotive Research Centre in Anglesey to really give it a crack off-road, and um, I think I got my head around it relatively well. So, hit me up with questions. What do you want to know? There's a lot of clever features with the new Ranger, but what were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, so I think uh, top level, some of the highlights. The first one is that V6 diesel with the, with the full-time uh, ability to use four-wheel drive on a slippery road. Um, the previous one had the part-time system, which lingers with the familiar bi-turbo diesel engine, but the V6 gets the full-time with the 10-speed auto. It's the old diesel out of the F-150 uh, Power Stroke, I think they call it. <laughs> they do have some great names yeah. in the US, don't they? <laughs> right for euphemism. But um, Ford Australia did a lot of work with it, you know, changed its ability to handle steeper tilt and Obviously, there's less room under the bonnet, so they had to make some packaging changes and things like that. But that really does give this car a massive edge. Volkswagen sold so many Amaroks purely because it had a V6 diesel. Um, and the fact that the Ranger's got something above the familiar 2-litre bi-turbo, which itself has had some tweaks, including new injectors. But that V6 really does move the game forward in a big way for it. There are a lot of really small touches I love about this car. So... It's got a little box step at the rear, which doesn't sound like much, but if you're a short ass, and, and I'm not, so I don't really <laughs> emphasize, I don't really uh, relate to that, but if you are a short ass, um, you don't really need to climb on the tyre or the rear step to get in. There's a little step literally located along the side of the tub, just behind the tyres. Um, there's some fantastic app integration. So uh, I remember as a kid, mum towed horse floats all over the country. One of my jobs was to stand at the back of the float and tell her if the left-right indicators working and brakes are working. 
looking for the brake controller. And you can now do that through an app. So you can pair your phone, your Ford Ranger to your Ford app, stand behind the car, press a button, and it will go through the full light sequence on the trailer for you. So you don't need to have a mate or a reflective shed around. Um, so that app integration stuff is great. You can also turn on projecting campsite lights from the Ranger from your app. So that's really clever. Inside, full portrait-oriented screens, either 10 or 12 inches with really nice graphics, really quick processing power, the sort of infotainment that we've never really seen in a Ute before. I know the D-Max and DT50 have big screens, but they feel very aftermarket compared to these properly integrated SYNC 4.0 forward systems, um, as well as full digital instrument clusters. There's also uh, an off-road mode that I've never really seen before. So you press a button, which takes you to a screen in your touchscreen, which allows you to set the diff lock, the hill descent control, and gives you a forward-view camera. So when you're cresting over a sharp uh, steep hill going down, you can't see over the bonnet, but you can with that. So there's lots of these little touches that Ford have done on top of the fundamentally strong package that really do make it, without even a shadow of a doubt, the best pickup truck. Having driven a, a Hilux SR5, the very latest version of said Hilux SR5 just a few weeks ago, there is literally nothing in my mind that that Hilux does better than the, the Ranger now. The only thing that's going to hold this car back is supply. They've got 5000 a month coming, and it's not even going to get close to a satisfying demand. They sold 20000 before the thing actually went on sale. That's before anybody got a test drive. They sold 20000 of them. So you can only imagine what's going to happen. So if you order one now, you might have to wait. Other than that, very hard to find too many grievances. Ute buyers can be a difficult bunch to please. They want all the latest features, but they also don't want to be challenged with too much change. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff in the Ranger sounds like it might be erring on the too much change side of things. So how do you think traditional Ute buyers and people who are hopping out of an old Ranger mm -hmm. will feel about the new one, particularly inside? Yeah, I mean, market research shows pretty clearly now that Utes appeal to a much wider array of people, right? It's not just a, a trading special anymore. Um, these are SUVs with tubs, especially at the higher end. That being said, the XL and XLS, which are the more work-oriented grades, you can still get with heavy-duty suspension. They still have hydraulic pull-up handbrakes. They still have part-time 4x4 with a button to engage your diff lock. They still have a bit more of a sort of agricultural feel. But I think we also probably shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the nation's tradies and farmers and blue-collar workers who traditionally bought dual cabutes aren't able to change. And what impressed me about this car was that a lot of its tech is quite accessible. This is not tech for the sake of tech. It didn't feel like they'd just put in a bunch of novelties just to have a sexy angle in a brochure. A lot of this stuff will actually tangibly make the lives of the owners easier and more convenient. So I think Ford has really read the room here by offering a broad suite of variants, including some more rough around the edges, traditional types further down the range, and then you get up into the wild track, and it, it really does feel like a like a luxury SUV with a tub. There's nothing this side of, say, your Ram 1500 or Chevy Silverados, which are well and truly over six figures. There's nothing else that can carry a load that can compete in that sense until you get up into those echelons of the market. So I think they've really balanced those two things pretty well. Something I've noticed on um, Ranger Owner Groups Online is how much demand there seems mm -hmm. to be for the V6. Do you think that a buyer who might not want to wait for the V6 is really missing out by settling for the Biturbo 4? Um, so the Biturbo 4 has had some improvements that make it a little better. Um, the injectors are new. There were some issues when the engine first lobbed with some, with some reliability problems around that, that that have been well documented. So that's been hopefully nipped in the bud. There's also some more sound deadening, some new seals, some 
uh, electric cooling fans to make it a bit quieter than before, a new torque converter and 10-speed auto, uh, which previously hunted a little too much for my liking. Um, it's still got the 2 liter bi-turbo has slightly less power than before, 154 kilowatts, but it was 157 before, so much of a much. And it's the same amount of torque. It can tow the same as the V6. It uses about a litre every 100 k's less diesel, um, although the V6 was impressively economical when I drove it, so in the real world that might not be the case. Um, but overall, no, I think I don't think you're doing yourself a disservice by getting the bike turbo. It's still got plenty of grunt. Um, the, the V6, though, is, is clearly the one people are going to want because Aussies want the best of the best, and it's only three grand more. That being said... Um, the three grand isn't the kicker, right? It's the, it's the wait time. If I got told that I could get a wild track two litre by turbo tomorrow, which I probably could, but I had to wait nine months to get a V6, that makes your decision quite easy. I don't think there are too many people. So Ford tried to sort of ambitiously say there are some people that would prefer the two litre because it's better on fuel and it's maybe a little quieter. Um, that seems like complete speed to me. Everybody obviously wants the V6. It's only three grand more. That's not a lot, that's not a lot of money. So it's really going to come down to, to, to stock and deliveries. As you say, the vast majority of the early interest is on the V6, and so you might just be able to get one now if you can downsize. When it comes to the drive, the, the outgoing Ranger remains one of the most comfortable, composed utes on the open road with nothing in the back. Does the new one move that feeling on further and, mm -hmm. I suppose, drag the dual cab class further away from tradie routes and into the SUV world almost? Well, as you said, it was already the best to drive um, it's no surprise that when you drive on corrugated gravel in Victoria's West or patchy B roads uh, with potholes everywhere or coarse chip stuff that you see all throughout regional Australia, it's no surprise the Ranger laps it up because it was literally engineered on those roads specifically for those roads. So it really does leave other utes in the shade. Aside from, of course, the incoming new Anorak, which is a Ranger underneath. Um, I wouldn't say this new one necessarily is some paradigm shifter as far as ride and handling goes, because the old one was so good. But the new one does retain that same signature feel. I really think at this point you could put a blindfold on me and I would know that I was in a Ranger, because it has a very distinctive feel, the way that it rides. When I laid it, I mean, it still has leaves at the rear. It does get disc brakes at the rear now, which is great, but it does have leaf springs, which is still pretty agricultural. But the way it's controlled... Ford has moved the damping outboard, which theoretically, according to the engineers, has some benefits, but I didn't feel it. The one dynamic change that I really thought was noticeable was the steering. So the previous one premiered uh, a motor-driven electric power steering system, which was video game light, which is fantastic if you're off-roading or if you're in the city. It's not so hard on your arms, but you're quite detached from the experience. And these aren't sports cars, but it's nice to have a bit more driver involvement. It feels like with a new system, it's a whole new power steering system. There's a bit more feel, a bit more engagement and a bit more directness. So I thought that was a welcome change. Um, but other than that, it rides just as well as the old one. So, Moko, obviously you've gone into a lot more depth in the review on Car Expert. We've also got a review of the Sport V6, which is an interesting variant that's new for 2023. So, obviously, check those out if you do want more detail. But to wrap it all up, what rating did you give the Ranger? Uh, 8.7 out of 10. Um, it is very hard in a generic launch review because you're looking at every variant across the board. Um, I think, you know, I separately reviewed the Sport V6 by itself, which got a slightly lower rating because... Ford has made that wild track so tempting, it's only three and a half grand more and you get a hell of a lot more stuff, including a remote-controlled uh, metallic roller tonneau cover and a much bigger touchscreen and all sorts of functions inside. So it's pretty hard not to go up to the wild track. Um, but overall, sort of like I said before, when it comes to 
outright on-road and off-road abilities when it comes to interior technologies. When it comes to safety, I didn't even touch on driver assist, but it's loaded with every driver assist feature you could possibly imagine, including steering in between the lanes and you know cruise control and matches the speed of the car ahead. That's in there. The app integration, all the clever little touches that I talked about before. When all these things come together and the fact that you are supporting uh, thousands of Australian people by buying this product who work on this product, um, it's a no-brainer for a buyer. It, it really does move the dial forward. The D-Max and the BT50 and the highlights are all solid workhorses, but this thing feels a cut above. It really does. And um, maybe in the fullness of time, we'll start to identify flaws and faults. It's early days yet, but based on first impression, pretty goddamn impressive. Yeah. We have two full reviews live on Car Expert. We also have a video review of the Wild Track by Turbo live on YouTube now. So make sure you check them all out for more. Mike, thank you very much. Great to talk, guys. It's the battle of the sporty hatches. Who will win between the Hyundai i30 N line hatch and the Volkswagen Polo GTI? James Wong has that answer. Hello, Jay Wo. Hello, hello. Um, now, I've got to ask you, why the N-line and not the N? Yeah, so this was a really interesting um, matchup, which I actually pitched originally, which is why I sort of took the reins and ran with it. But I sort of wanted to do something a little bit different. And, you know, the new Polo, or the, at least the current Polo, has grown to the point now where it offers pretty similar space and, you know, practicality to vehicles from the segment above. And, you know, norm, typically we would say these the junior hot hatches, when you think like Fiesta ST and Hyundai i20N and Polo GTI, they're sort of like they're fun and they're, you know, they're quite raw or basic in some ways, but they're not quite as like hardcore as something like an i30N or, you know, a Renault Vagana RS. So I set out looking at the, the pricing and the specs and everything, and I was quite surprised at how well the top spec i30 N-Line premium hatch and the Polo GTI matched up on paper. There's a couple of grand in it um, in terms of price difference. The Polo is actually more expensive. And then once you option it up to the same spec, it's, quite a bit more expensive, but in terms of like the engines and outputs and everything, they're only about a, a few kilowatts off each other. The Polo has more torque. They both have dual clutch transmissions, front wheel drive, that sort of thing. So it was, um, I thought it was a really cool matchup and something really interesting to do. Hmm. So what prices are we looking at? So the Polo with the two packs, the one we had was fully optioned and had um, special paint on it. So it was, you know, low to mid 40s once you get it on the road, whereas the Hyundai is sort of high 30s and nudges maybe the 40 mark once you get it on the road. It doesn't really need to be optioned up. So the, the Polo sort of starts off on the back foot in terms of that. But while it on, pa- on paper it may be similarly specced or maybe a little bit less than the i30 when you start you know listing things out on paper one thing that Volkswagen does really well is that it filters down so much really good and refined technology and features from higher up in the range so you know the the Volkswagen satnav has wireless Apple carplay you basically get semi-autonomous driving ability it's got matrix LED headlights um, and it, it really looks it looks like a really upmarket offering it almost renders the Audi A1 redundant at this point because (laughs) it's got everything the Audi has anyway. Um, So that was something that really surprised me when I first stepped into the new Polo because this is my first time actually seeing one and and getting to experience it to the point where it actually has some better tech than my previous generation Golf GTI. 
Um, the Hyundai, obviously, it's been around for a little while now. Um, the company's refined it to the point where it's still a really, really good value offering. Like to get this car for under thirty, uh, for under forty grand, sorry, is um, it's a really good buy. And I think it's it might be forgotten these days in the sea of competitors that it has. And maybe the Serato GT gets a little bit more thunder these days because it's a little bit more of a sporty offering. But it's a really good all rounder, and it's sort of like that. Again, it sort of offers that all-round jack-of-all-trades vibe that perhaps has been lost with some of the newer releases in, on the more hardcore side of things. And i30N, for example, is very loud, very boisterous, and, you know, is quite hard to live with day-to-day. And this one still dials in that level of comfort, and it's almost more like GT-like rather than a, mm. an all-out corner carver. So I actually got Scott to join me on the, the back-to-back drive out through Hillsville and up through the mountains out that far east in Victoria and actually had a really, really good time. I think what I love about this comparison is conceptually it's much more aligned to me with often what we see to be buyer behaviours. So on the face of it, as a car enthusiast, you'd say that, all right, surely the Polo GTI goes up against the i20N, right? Mm -hmm. They're both the same size, they're pocket rockets. Um, But to be honest with you, the choice is quite stark for a consumer. You've got the same amount of money to spend there or thereabouts. Do you get the slightly smaller car that's slightly angrier or do you get the slightly bigger car that can be angry but is also a little bit more comfortable and usable and practical? And, you know, which of those two is going to suit your lifestyle better? So it's it's this sort of comparison that we're doing at the moment that doesn't necessarily slavishly adhere to vehicle segmentation but looks at other common factors instead of segmentation. So I really thought that was a good point that this, uh, this comparison drove home. With the way they drove James, there was quite a, a distinct difference in personality between them. Mm-hmm. Which of them do you feel was the more fun to drive? And then I suppose the flip side of that is which of them would you rather live with? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, in the past, we've all driven some of Hyundai's end products, for example, and typically when you compare a Volkswagen GTI or R-Line product against any of the competition, normally the Volkswagen's the more refined, civilised one, whereas in this case it was actually the opposite, whereas the, you know, the new Polo is quite loud, it, it rides quite firmly, even though it's got adaptive dampers, you know, it's, it's very sporting in, in its demeanour and it's very obvious from the moment that you get going and also once we started going out to these twisty mountain roads and the, it's got so much torque. So, you know, if you're on a, a smooth, grippy road or whatever and you're trying to overtake on the freeway, obviously you've got heaps and heaps of grunt and it makes a really nice sound doing it. But something that I found, and I think, Scott, you'll echo these thoughts as well, is that once we got into like Hillsville and up through the mountains, there are times where you, if you try to really give it full throttle, it was just constantly scrabbling around for grip. And it's not, it wasn't necessarily nervous or, you know, it, it didn't, like hit your um, confidence in it but it just meant that you didn't feel like you could push it much harder and you you met its limits quite quickly um also having a less sophisticated rear suspension setup so the polo runs a torsion beam rear axle whereas the inline versions of the i30 um have an independent rear axle and it just feels a bit better glued to the road and because the i30 is a little bit softer as well it just doesn't feel like you're being knocked around as much and mid corner bumps don't upset it and things like that it's obviously the softer car um, but, you know, there was a couple of t- occasions where once you get out of a corner, because the i30 just was a little bit more settled, it would actually accelerate away from the polo and it's losing about 60 newton metres to the polo. Wow. Because it was just 
a lot more secure and relaxed. Um, does that mean the i30 was more fun? No, because it, you can't really hear the engine plugging away. And that 1.6 litre turbo is actually quite a fun little engine to rev out. But in this particular um, implementation, it doesn't make a lot of sound. And I really didn't like the, the, the current instrument cluster that Hyundai puts in them has this interesting center, virtual center dial that is dedicated to the speedometer. But the taco is this weird sideways looking thing on the on the left. And so occasionally, if you're trying to manually shift yourself and you get these nice big paddles sticking out of the steering wheel, um, it's sometimes hard to gauge where you are in the rev range. So occasionally you're like almost in the rev limiter because it only starts making noise once you're really, really up in the rev range. And it's also hard to, you just don't know when to shift. So there's a couple of times where like if you're really gunning it, it's just not built for that i think it's more an everyday car with a little bit more performance and if you want to you know pull the paddles yourself you can but in terms of being an, an all-out you know fun machine it, that definitely is where the i30n would step in because that 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 car with its variable exhaust and the the wet clutch eight speed dual clutch automatic is an excellent combo but i think this was the the end line was surprisingly fun and capable but just not quite as raw fun and and sporty as the polo so that was a really interesting takeaway from this comparison for me how did they drive when or how did the transmission cope when you're not using those shift paddles I think the the Volkswagen's one was the more refined unit. I know it's it's funny because normally people, when they say dual clutch transmissions aren't their cup of tea, um, to put it lightly, normally they'll use the Volkswagen ones as a reference. But I think something that I've found not a, not because I'm an owner, but you know, we I think it, it, I found that usually the Volkswagen Group stuff is the most refined of its type. The 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 six. The seven-speed, sorry, dry clutch dual um, transmission in the Hyundai, and it's also used in, a, in an array of Hyundai and Kia products, is not my favourite one. It's it's a little bit slingshotty between first and second and on takeoff. Occasionally, it'll clunk through gears as you come down, and it's just not quite as responsive or as smooth. You get little breaks in in torque as well, depending on which gear you're in. Whereas the Volkswagen one, it's always ready to go. It makes little fun little noises on upshifts. It, it seems to be in the right spot when you need it and um, was definitely more responsive and more intuitive. So I think between the two there, and the Volkswagen's also losing a speed to the Hyundai. It's got six speeds instead of seven. Um, I definitely thought that that was the better transmission on test. Based on the price of them, which do you think is better value? Because that Polo I know comes stocked with equipment, but it is a $40,000 Volkswagen Polo. Yeah, I, I think the, the Hyundai is the value play here. It's got the better cabin trimmings. It looks and feels more substantial and it does it feels more like a larger car that's sort of been not dressed down but you know it feels like a a more expensive car from the get-go whereas the polo still does feel like a dressed up cheap car in in some ways like the hard door plastics and things like that and there are certain elements in there that don't feel as particularly high-end as the hyundai um but that's not to say that the polo feels necessarily cheap or, or not befitting of its price tag, especially when you consider the, the tech that you, you get, um, standard and optional. Um, I think the while the Hyundai does a really good job with infotainment and the seats are more comfortable and things like that, there are certain elements of the Polo like the, the navigation and the, the, the digital instrument cluster and things like that, which are nicer. And then obviously if you get the full gamut of features, the, the driver assist technology that the Volkswagen has is superior. But in terms of um, value from, from the get-go, the Hyundai does win there pretty, pretty easily. 
Which one do you think would be the the better daily driver? It's hard. I think it depends on what you really, you know, what you prioritise. There would be some people that's, that love the fact that with the polo, you get that little bit of noise and, and engagement and fun in all forms of driving. There are certain vehicles of this type where you really have to be going 10 tenths to get the most out of them or feel like you're really um, seeing the character on display. I think the Polo is really good in that it was actually more, I actually have more fun driving it around the city than I normally do in my golf because it's a little bit louder, it's a little bit sillier. <laughs> um, I actually had quite a lot of fun driving to and from working the Polo because every every drive's a fun drive. And even even if it's, it's more civilised setting, there's still a little bit of a growl, there's a little bit of a pop to the upshifts and it's definitely comfortable enough for everyday driving, but it, it does err a little bit more on the sportier, firmer side, which might not be to all tastes. Whereas the Hyundai sort of dials back a little bit on the anger and the noise and the, and the firmness and gives you, you know, really decent and good performance for the money, but then sort of takes away from the theatre and adds refinement and things like that, which might be more to other tastes. So I think it really depends here on, on what you're after and what you deem important. And it's, it's a similar sort of conclusion to what I would say, you know, comparing a Golf GTI to a Focus RS, oh, sorry, a Focus ST, the RS doesn't exist anymore, Focus ST or like a Megane RS in that, you know, you can go for the more hardcore ones that are still doable for daily driving, but they'll do it in a much hard, hardcore way, whereas the, the Golf is more the all-round option. It's sort of the, the opposite this time around where the Volkswagen is the harder, louder option and the Hyundai is the quieter, more refined one. So I guess it just really depends on what you're after. And obviously the, the Hyundai comes with the benefit of being significantly cheaper without needing to option it up to get the full suite of um, features. So, Joe, which one won? Again, I don't know if I can really say there's a clear winner. For me personally, I preferred the Polo just because it's sort of the mixture and, and ingredients of ingredients in there were better suited to my taste. I think it did a really good job of balancing the, the fun and sporting character with everyday comfort, but sort of erring on the fun side without being too brash. But I think objectively it's hard to ignore the fact that the Hyundai really stacks up as a great all-round you know, warm hatch proposition. It offers really good performance. It's still very practical, feels really nice inside. And, you know, it's a surprisingly comfortable, livable car day to day. Um, and I think that also distinguishes itself from the, the Kia Cerato GT with which it shares much of its mechanicals with as well. It's definitely the more comfortable all-round option. So um, props to both. But, uh, yeah, I think for, yeah, my personal taste is the Volkswagen, but I, I think objectively the, the Hyundai is the, the better all-rounder. Okay, well, keep your eyes open for that comparison at Car Expert. Thank you, James Wong. Thank you. To round out this week's podcast, what cars have we got in the garage, Scully? It is a mixed bag this week. We've got a Volvo XC60 plug-in hybrid, uh, a Ford Ranger XLT V6, which I'm really excited to drive because Paul and Mike have now spent a bit of time in the Ranger. I'm yet to grab the keys to a new one. Uh, the Kia Nero Hybrid S, a Volkswagen Polo Style, and a Peugeot 3008 GT Sport. And then up in Queensland, we've got an Alfa Romeo Giulia Veloce and a BMW i4 M50. So a real range of cars coming through for different bits and pieces. I, yeah, I'm excited for the Ranger. I can't say anything. <laughs> I, think, I think we all are. Um, and we've got some launches coming up over the coming weeks, Mike. Yeah, we do. There's a couple on the way. Uh, Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid, second generation. The uh, Mr. Paul Marriage himself will be attending that. Um, Hyundai Palisade update 
Tony Crawford will be taking care of that for us. The Cupra Drive event, Scully, you're doing that, continuing to guzzle down that uh, Cupra Kool-Aid. Good to see. <laughs> um, there's also a Skoda Fabia and Karok update launch coming and a couple of massive ones, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but over the next few weeks, new Nissan Z and new GR Corolla two enormous performance car launches for the next month or so as well. So we're really, really happy that, um, I mean, COVID's not over, but um, lockdowns are, and it means we can actually go places and drive things again, which is lovely. Ah, oh, isn't it? How we've missed it. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap, guys. Scott Colley and Mike Costello, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.